Good evening. I'm Axis. I'm Moner. And you're listening to The Late Night, a horror podcast. Welcome back, Radio Revelers. It's March, and of course, nothing went as planned for 2020, and 2021 got off to just as bumpy a start. The result was that February came later than expected, and of course, now that we're in March, Axis and I felt that since some fans wanted a late night episode with some iteration of My Bloody Valentine or Valentine's Day Horror, that this lineup simply felt like the logical choice. So we're kind of like retconning our February stuff, but since we're not like, you know, doing the uh, traditional February celebrations, tonight we'll be watching Patrick Lussier's My Bloody Valentine 3D from 2009, starring Jensen Eccles, Jamie King, and Kerr Smith. And we'll be following that with In the Mouth of Madness from 1994, directed by John Carpenter, starring Sam Neill, Julie Carmen, and Francis Bay. We'll be right back after the tone. Stay tuned. All right, so... My bloody Valentine. Bloody indeed. Yeah, what a what a fun little gore fest. Box office to budget of fourteen million to a hundred million, which uh, was actually quite impressive considering that people were like, "It's mundane, it's boring," and it's like, "No, this is actually a horror movie. It's a horror movie in three D. That mm-hmm. shit worked with the, uh, the creature from the Black Lagoon. I don't see why it wouldn't work here. It's kind of like." Hmm, maybe we don't have to like layer fucking metaphor and meaning into every single goddamn aesthetic <laughs> choice in order to entertain the people. Yeah, sometimes you just want to see a girl get her head cut in half by a shovel without all that added plot. Had Tom Atkins in it. I was satisfied, you know. Yeah, I was I was kind of thinking the whole time through that um especially by my second watch, I I feel like this kind of slasher brand of horror movie is the cinematic equivalent to a Lifetime movie, where both are just the vaguest scraps of plot built to surround alternately intense violence and or repressed horniness. (laughs) So, like, as somebody who's watched plenty of Hallmark movies, this felt like a surprising, like, comfort zone for me, where I was like, oh, yeah, I know how this works. (laughs) So... Just to summarize, Tom Hanniger is the son of the owner of the mines in the town of Harmony. Tom has a nice cushy job bleeding the lines of methane, and unfortunately, after local miner Harry Wardens, played by the very talented Richard John Walters, kindly reminds him to bleed the lines, Tom somehow forgets and there's a cave-in. Warden is found in a coma, being the sole survivor. Oh, and um, yeah, he killed everybody, uh beforehand to conserve his air he wakes up in a hospital on valentine's day and continues his rampage oh side note yeah (laughs) at the same time tom returns with his classmates and girlfriend sarah mercer played by jamie king to have a party because that's what you do when you start dating right you ask someone to return to a place where they accidentally murdered a bunch of people to have a party Harry shows yeah, up. Yeah, I have all my best dates at the sites of my own trauma. Or where you murdered people, too. It's like, you know, that's yeah, like... Yeah, both. Like, baby, do you remember when we killed people here 10 years ago? Yeah, baby, I do. <laughs> Harry shows up, murders lots of 20-something-looking teenagers, gets shot and leaves Hanniger hearing ghostly robot sounds from Scooby-Doo. We fast forward to 10 years later, the teens have grown up, and Tom's ex has married the local douchebag Axel Palmer, uh, who's also the sheriff and cheating on her with a much younger looking girl named Megan, played by Megan Boone, who in real life is descended from, from some very notable real estate developers. And Megan reveals, happy valentines, I'm pregnant. 
Oh, and Tom Hanniger <laughs> returns to sell his mines, which anyone who knows mining towns knows that that is a really shitty thing to do because it makes the locals less than pleased with you. I mean, environmental concerns be damned. <laughs> so the film has everything. Adults who can't let go of their teenage drama, former rivalries coming to a boil, and lots and lots of pickaxe murder. Um, you know... It was your typical Kevin Williams murder mystery setup with everyone wondering if Harry Warden is still alive. Is he still alive? Technically, yes. Harry is alive and well in Tom Hanniger in the form of dissociative identity disorder. Ah, Southern Pennsylvania. A place to shoot movies with tax breaks. That's kind of what I thought overall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, speaking of, you know, the him being alive inside Tom, I, I really did think afterwards... Obviously, Axel was being a jealous dick to Tom for most of the yeah. movie, but a lot of problems would have been solved if Tom had just been held on suspicion of murder from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Like, imagine all the murders that wouldn't have happened if they just put him in a cell while they were investigating and, you know, followed legal procedure. And where was the lawyer in all of that, right? It's like... Where was the lawyer? Like, my representation. There were no lawyers. The mayor. Uh-huh. Oh, you know where the lawyer was? The lawyer was, he go, he's like, here, I, I'm here to sign the contracts. And they're like, oh, didn't the legal team tell you this? They moved it to Monday. The lawyers are off partying somewhere for the weekend. They're going to come back into town on Monday and go, oh, not only do we not have a contract to sign, but everything's gone to hell and back. <laughs> kind of hoping Milton Chadwick and Waters is the representatives, are the representatives on that one. It's a little devil's advocate humor. Um... Mm -hmm. Yeah. So overall, I, I actually saw this one in theaters when I was about I don't know, 25, 24. And it was, I thought it was really good. It was the first time I had seen a movie in 3D in forever. It was the first time I'd seen a movie mm -hmm. in 3D without like blue and red obscuring my vision. Um, <laughs> the thing that I think I dug the most was the soundtrack from Michael Wanmacher because it just seemed to be something that actually did propel the film i mean of course we we had other nice things like kipping pennsylvania right and mm -hmm. um it was just it was a lot of fun i i didn't really feel like it was necessarily the most artistic film ever made i don't really but it didn't need, need to be, to be. Right. Yeah. funny thing yeah, I would like to say that the gentleman who played Tom Hanniger, Richard John Walters, is actually has a legal degree. So he could have actually been the really? representative. Yeah. Fantastic. He has a oh, I love in law. that. <laughs> I love that. I see. I I'm always interested by those people who are like multi talented actors oh, who everybody have other in that careers cast, like actually, that they could do. Yeah, but like whether it happens before or after, like we talked about um, in. In, in the mouth of madness during the during the watch along that Julie Carmen mm -hmm. who plays Linda yeah. is you know also also has a master's in clinical psychology and is a therapist and stuff like that's great I think that happened in the gap in between like she was acting then she took a family break got all of her degrees and then went back to acting as I believe the timeline yeah. but then with people like this I'm like did you become a lawyer and then get bored partway through and go mm, now nah, I'm just gonna start doing horror movies instead like what was the timeline I love to I see it I actually think that that happens to a lot of people who, who, yeah. who go through that. Yeah, I feel like the classic contemporary example of that now is Ken Jeong mm -hmm. who yeah. did the same thing without being super Hollywood hot. <laughs> like, 
He was like, you know what? No, I'm just going to do it anyway. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> like, so much appreciation Maya. for Ken Jeong and the, the niche he has carved out for himself in the entertainment industry. <laughs> Natalie Portman's in Mensa. Mayim Bialik is also mm-hmm. a, a neuroscientist, neuroscientist, I'm pretty sure. That's right, thank you. Yeah, I mean, there are plenty. There are plenty. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's not surprising. Like, especially when you look at actors, there are, like, there are some who are just fucking around, but... A lot of them are so cerebral about it that it does not surprise me that, you know, they're going for many different multiple layers of uh... For whatever my room work experience counts, um, (laughs) my time doing conventions has definitely... I met people who were pro wrestlers before they were, you know, working on horror sets and Mm -hmm. because of their size. I met people who were, who started off as actors and then they became producers. That happens a lot. You know, there there were actors who were utilizing their skill set so that they could go further in life. And then there were people who'd simply gotten a lot of money. They're like, fuck it. Where's the drugs in the desert? I want cocaine, you know? Yeah. Yeah. See, it's it's true because there's there's also it's an industry without oversight. For most people, there is not a lot of career stability. There is not a lot of oversight. So, like once you succeed you can do fuck all like you can do whatever you want but like for the people who have one good role and then you know fall off it's i get it i i went to college with plenty of actors who were people who super talented who were like yeah i'm gonna do it i'm gonna go to theater school i'm gonna become an actor and i thought about it like as somebody like i've been acting since i was a a wee little lass but i was like you know i'm just not ready to commit to being a starving artist like couch surfing all the time so i mean obviously instead i became a starving anthropologist a great career move on my part but (laughs) but you know i i get not wanting to put all of your eggs in one basket which i think is probably also why you have so many multi-talented actors which i entirely understand (laughs) and i would also say that that extends to most of the arts i don't think there's a single artist i know who doesn't have some sort of other thing that they can do to Mm -hmm. make money it's like yeah you've always got to have the fallback plan Mm -hmm. egon from um ghostbusters uh harold ramus he was a reporter for playboy um that just the list goes on and on and on and i mean you know you see that with the writers too even you know you can't just do publishing you do like five other things in the meantime so and ask yeah. Axis. I'm like, Axis is like, Motor, how was your week? I haven't slept in three days. I'm juggling six things in the cosmos. And I'm like, God, please stop. Just please stop for one minute so you can get one one full night's sleep instead of one night's sleep distributed over an entire week. That's what I'm looking forward to. I want my headstone. I, I really do. I want my headstone to, to read, made it. <laughs> yeah yeah it's big dreams mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah balance be- big dreams balance between incredible achievements and actually being able to sleep through the night i'd, I'd take either I, mean, I don't always get the luxury of both so i kind of i kind of just yeah. take the dreams so because at least they're yeah, good they're good, go. at, they're good they're good distractions so yeah very true yeah, so my bloody Valentine. <laughs> yeah, my bloody Valentine was interesting. I mean, there was a lot of things that we, you know, there's a lot of uh, problematic behavior. I mean, which was basically the entire movie. Um, oh, oh, you, do you want to talk about problematic sure. behavior? Because, um, okay, so first, I just, I want to say, um, 
before we get into that, I you mentioned box office, and it ranked third in box office on its opening weekend behind Gran Torino and Paul Blart Mall Cop. <laughs> and who could compete with Paul Blart? Apparently no one. Um, but its other notable achievements. This movie was in the top five most complained about movies for the Australian Classification yeah. Board in 2009 when it came out, even though they had rated it at R18+, which is the highest non-porn rating they had. So many people wanted it just banned entirely from the entire country of australia i would have paid money to fucking watch the promoter or whoever it was or the producer or the director on the phone <laughs> like, what we put a pickaxe through a midget and into a fucking ceiling who doesn't do that at least once or twice come on mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah um so while i was trying to look up more information about this movie i stumbled on the most delightful review on the family-focused, quote-unquote family-focused, Christian TV and movie review website, Plugged In. So, Plugged In reviews all aspects of objectionable content, including violence and sexual material. So when you go to their page on My Bloody Valentine, um, the shortest entry is, of course, on the movie's positive elements, where they generously state that, quote, Axel protects several women in danger, sometimes risking his life to do so. Sarah is portrayed as a loving mother to her young son, Noah. That's it. That's the positives. <laughs> they get two sentences. As you can imagine, the, uh, the sections on sexual content and on violence are very vivid. Um, but my favorite bit is the section on, quote, crude and profane language, right. um, which reads, and I quote, I'm just going to read you the whole paragraph. The F word is spoken. Actually, it's often screamed close to 40 times. The S word trails behind it at about 15. Jesus' name is abused a half dozen times. God's is interjected more than 20. <laughs> Several times it is combined with D dash dash N. <laughs> Obscene name calling references oral sex and female anatomy. End quote. It delights me, simply delights me, that in a movie where a nude woman is gored to death with a pickaxe, the reviewers still took the time to mention the abuse of the Lord's name. What? They really, it's that attention to detail in journalism that I do so love to see. <laughs> Good old commandment number three. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They, yeah, the letter of the law, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and in continuing news coverage, uh, I was trying to see if there was any th interesting info on how they shot that scene in the mine where the girl gets the shovel to the mouth and her head's cut in half. And I didn't really find much, but what I did find was an article entitled uh, Top Nine Shovel or Spade Kills, <laughs> which is such a specific niche interest. <laughs> and honestly, I think they ranked this one too low. I'm just going to go out on a limb say too also, low. <laughs> really a worthwhile endeavor to know those other nine, you know? Yeah, I mean, I've been enlightened. <laughs> and I've also, I think I've learned about myself that especially after watching this spade, sorry, shovel or spade kill top nine, um, I'm much less impressed by the blunt force trauma ones. Like there are a lot of just bashing with the flat side of a, of a shovel. Much less impressive. Give me that shovel slicing action. I want to see the head come off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's a, this has really been a, a learning experience for all of us, I think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the the one thing that I can say 
and I say this with a grain of salt, is that the only thing that I can say as a positive is I, I really didn't hear any on-set complaining, right? Mm. I didn't hear any mm. sexual harassment, you know, complaints. You know, yeah. It's, it's, it's actually becoming a fucking rarity these days. <laughs> and yep. I'm like, I yep. kind of sit there with like a, with a, with a, a very skeptical optimism, like, come on, please, please, just, just, just <laughs> no, god damn it. <laughs> this one too so can't gonna, we have one good like thing fucking, yeah i'm waiting like that fucking train's coming any day now but like you know no i mean it sounded pretty pretty chill everything i there it's not like there's a huge enough fan base that there's tons of behind the scenes info but it seemed pretty chill i mean the the most uh scandalous stuff that i found um was uh uh Edie Gathegi, um who played uh the deputy's assistant mm-hmm. um it was basically just him being like, oh my gosh. I mean, props to uh, props to the, the our wonderful nude wo- woman, uh, Rue, who was running around, you know, half naked for most of the scene. He was like, I was just, I, I had to be on set with her and I, I couldn't make direct eye contact. I kept having to look away. And I'm like, okay, Eddie, okay. <laughs> that was the most scandalous details I could find. <laughs> Which is impressive for a film that's all about scandal that the actual production process yeah. seemed pretty chill. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad they had a good time. And for production values, I also I, I, I do want to mention just the uh, the 3D aspect of it, because this was the first horror movie and first R-rated movie that was filmed in real D 3D, yep. which was soon to be followed by The Final Destination. Um, but it was released on a record number of screens for a 3D movie and was part of this early 2000s renaissance of 3D movies that peaked with James Cameron's Avatar. Mm-hmm. And this was at a time when... 3D was also a little bit controversial and during this renaissance, and uh, people like James Cameron were complaining about films that were shot in 2D and converted into 3D as an afterthought. Uh, but there's this review, uh, Frank Schenk of The Hollywood Reporter said, quote, While the concept of adding 3D to the horror genre is hardly new, right. Patrick Lussier's film is the most accomplished really example. Yeah, the 3D effects come fast and furious, rendered with a technical skill and humor that gives this otherwise strictly formulaic slasher picture whatever entertainment value it and, possesses. And normally, I, I just want to interject. Nails I don't it. Know, apologize here. Yeah, the please. The reason why Cameron no, no, says no, no, stuff I'm... like that is because uh, this is my feeling about Cameron over the years: is that it's like I'm James Cameron, and anybody who isn't me, I'm gonna shit on their shit. <laughs> oh yeah, no. The direct quotes from Cameron are about about this are that. He complained because he obviously made Avatar to be like the ultimate 3D experience and then was like, it's terrible when you convert 2D into 3D unless you have a ton of money, which is how he justified uh, redoing Titanic in 3D. That was he's like, no, because I had the money and the resources to do it right. It's good. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah, we really need to see that one guy bounce off the fucking propeller in three days. So mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, unsurprising shitty takes from James Cameron, but for my bloody Valentine, I definitely agree. Like, I this is one that I'm bummed. I really wish I had gotten to see it in 3D because it feels like it would definitely be worth it. And they were talking about that too when they were picking filming locations, um, how incredible the mines yeah. were for that because there's such depth of field in those mine yep. shots that are marked by all of those little walls <laughs> that are built in. It, they were brilliant about planning 3D yeah. shots for this. I, I think Pennsylvania mines in and of themselves um, are just, they're very interesting to look at. There's so much history behind them too. I mean, I really don't understand 
and and this is just me as kind of a cultural aside here you know we've been talking so much about reopening minds and people can't keeping their jobs and part of me really feels like mining you know like you know we we run plymouth plantation uh plymouth plantation doesn't mm-hmm. create any resources or anything but there's plenty of fucking history at plymouth plantation i really don't see a problem with simply turning those mines especially those mines in pennsylvania um into historical sites where people can go and visit them yeah. and go take tours because i think that would be a much better use of their resources because there's so much that happened there people don't even talk about it most people like if i bring up the idea of a canary in a mine most people don't even get the reference anymore that really (laughs) blows me the fuck away because like my great great grandpa died of like fucking black lung because he was working in a in a mine at like i think 12 Mm -hmm. maybe yeah jesus christ like yeah, I mean, I definitely don't have the family connection, but I could see it. I oh, mean, especially yeah. in quite Pennsylvania, like because I've pictures gone... of a ten-year-old walking out with a cigarette. Like, yeah, our day. Yeah, I'll pass. <laughs> no thanks. You're just like you're looking at the kid like you're not tall enough to smoke that. Yeah, give me that here. <laughs> I know. At ten, I was like, mm, which shade of Crayola is the true best yellow? Right. <laughs> Jesus. Not thinking about intensive mine labor. Oh. <laughs> But yeah, for Pennsylvania, I could totally see it. Like I've gone, I've done trips in Pennsylvania to look at like the natural cave systems there. But, you know, as a a museum of industry sort of thing, definitely cool. And especially if you unearthed any cool stuff in there, geological interest. I'm always down to see a cool rock. Yeah, agreed. (laughs) And there's there's a lot we learn from geology. I mean, people always think of geology and I think it's boring shit, but it really isn't. Oh, Oh my god. My favorite place on this earth is in the Hall of Minerals and Gems at the Museum of Natural History in New York City. Like, I can just spend hours in there just sitting there being like, mmm, rocks. Right. I love rocks. <laughs> Part of me feels that way too. That was my second favorite exhibit. I was kind of like, you know, if you could combine the rocks and the dinosaur bones together, like if we could have a crystal saurus, <laughs> I'd be, I'd just never leave. <laughs> Okay, actually, this is, you know, we're getting into tangents, but this is why one of my favorite uh, mineral experiences. So you can find um, fossilized uh, ammonites. That's, you know, pretty common fossil to get. But you can also find amylite, which is when ammonites then have their kind of crystalline structure after they're... they turn into fossils, but they have opal material, other iridescent kind of minerals that come in and create that fossil structure. Right. So they become a unique gemstone that's used in the gem process. But that means you have gem fossils. Right. And that's the coolest shit ever. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, so now that I've gone down that rabbit hole. So, um... <laughs> Yeah, I said I didn't have rabbit holes for this episode. I know, I Clearly, I've lied. Either, so it's fine. Um, so, uh, <laughs> you know. Let's go on to John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness. John Trent is an insurance claims investigator. Emphasis on investigator for you Arkham fans who gets sent looking for a missing horror author to get his manuscript and figures out that the writer's work is actually becoming reality because the books have been read more than the Bible. And so reality basically flips on its head and uh, the Lovecraft, you know, the Lovecraftian elder gods, though we're not calling them that, especially I think we're calling it the old ones in this iteration, they um, are able to break through reality and take over our own. We all mutate or we get slaughtered or both, whatever, uh, by the by the monsters. Um, so 
Yeah, this one uh, was on your mind a little, yeah, I think. Was. I mean, I, I will get to that toward the end. But, like, I want this is actually part of John's Apocalypse trilogy, right? Mm-hmm. So, for anybody who doesn't know, John Carpenter is the director of the Halloween franchise, or he's the man who created the Halloween franchise. He's a composer. He's a writer. There's pretty much if like if you told me that like he could turn lead into gold, I'd I'd actually believe it. He just he's very skilled. Um, my favorite John Carpenter movie is Christine, but I don't think I've ever. There's very few John Carpenter movies that I ever really hated, and none of the you know when John was working in the early '80s to create these three movies. Um, I really felt like he just couldn't fucking catch a break. So the the first one he did mm. was um, The Thing in 1982. Mm. That was a great example of we don't know how to market shit and we had the worst timing release possible. So The Thing got released at the time, the same week that E.T. got released. And so it got buried. Even my dad used to tell me, like, it was a great movie. It's just like there was nobody in the theater to watch it. Um, It had a Mm -hmm. budget of 15 million, and I think it raked in 19 million. I actually think it operated at a loss, but, you know, I'm not going to argue with the numbers. Um, Then there was, and, and, you know, for anybody who doesn't know, the thing is based on uh, John W. Campbell's Who Goes There. Um, It was an amazing movie. Just. You know, it's one of it's definitely one of the top ten cult horror movies today. Um, then there was Prince of Darkness, which is certainly it's probably not in the top ten, but it sure is shit ain't like it's not in the bottom fifty or anything. Um, that had a budget box office to budget of three million and it raked in fourteen, which to this day still blows me the fuck away how the print how the Prince of Darkness raked in less cash than the thing did i my brain still glitches trying to understand <laughs> i'm like okay. and um yeah that was another good piece but in the mouth of madness i thought was one of the best mm-hmm. lovecraftian adaptions to film ever um i mean the only things that really compare are of course you know, from beyond reanimator, right? Those are the only things that really, and that's a completely, you know, not, not to be snobby or anything, because I'm not trying to be snobby about it. It's just a different type of movie, right? One is more, Uh one is more hammy. When we're talking about reanimator, it's no less gruesome, but it's, it's far hammier than, um, than John Carpenter's in the mouth of madness. And, the thing is, in the Mouth of Madness, really try to take as serious approach as I think you can to adapting the Lovecraftian mythos to screen. I mean, in the last, I want to say, 10 years, we've gotten much more efficient with taking the subject seriously. We've gotten much more efficient mm-hmm. with, you know, considering madness as a as a as a medium. And, you know, video game wise, you know, we've seen it all over the place with the shore and and, uh, whatever else the hell, um, you know, we've gotten from the Arkham Horror series that's been adapted. I mean, even the art and that's that's, um, you know, the the sunken city and like there's just so much shit that we've put on screen where um, where we've gotten much better at adapting Lovecraft 
Um, you know, the color of space is also another big one, and we'll probably get back to that sometime. Um, and then, of course, there's just looking at it in the Mouth of Madness on its own. And in terms of that trilogy, you know, lots of directors do trilogies. You know, the, probably the more famous one or the more... The more recent popular, you know, pop culture one is um, Edgar Wright's Cornetto trilogy with um, Simon Pegg, Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and uh, At the World's End. And those are also fantastic, you know, and, but the thing that really mm-hmm. blows me away is that the, that of all of the box office to budget rakebacks that, and the Lovecraftian that was best executed this fucking movie cost 8.8 million to make and raked in 8.9 and you're thinking how did that happen because it's like it's not like yeah, it did not go we well not in the middle of a depression right and you're kind of looking at it going you know this is something that directors and film studios should study because to this day i still don't get how it happened and it, it really does blow me away how they they manage to rake in less money than most really shitty B movies do. When when mm-hmm. yeah, to me it felt very relevant considering how much politics and mm-hmm. religion have been uh, mingling over the last few years. There's been uh, there's been a lot of words thrown around, like the word cult is thrown around very often. You know between yeah between QAnon mm-hmm. and you know the belief in QAnon and um, and Trump followers themselves. There's mm-hmm. like there's a cult and then it's like no maybe you're the cult and it starts to feel like a really big fucking game of werewolf if anybody's ever played that game it's kind of like you know who's the werewolf who's the real there's a cult? lynch party until you find the werewolf or until the werewolf outnumbers you and then slaughters you and the game ends it's really fun uh wiki the rules if you don't know them um but yeah that's this um this particular movie definitely hits home now because I think it, it definitely echoes the last four years a lot louder than when it first came out. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, it's it is th- interesting thinking about it as more of a societal foil because I mean I think at the time I do wonder. I think you have more affection for this movie than I do. Yeah. <laughs> I was yeah. like, after my first viewing, I will confess I was a little let down and like, I'll talk about why, but I do wonder, you know, if it would have been a different experience if I were watching this and, you know, back in the nineties. But I think seeing it through a more contemporary lens, it like almost feels like a cult film, like a, a kind of thing that would be, you know, a, a cult film, except it's almost too big. And there was a review that I found uh, Mick LaSalle of the San Francisco Chronicle said the movie was, quote, cheesy horror celebrating the power of cheesy horror while pretending to be appalled. And I think that does a really good job of articulating why I walked away from my first viewing a little let down. I think if this had been a more self-aware film that played into its cult film qualities instead of keeping up the pretension of being this big budget flick i I would have enjoyed it more actually i think that we should be remaking the movie in another five years or ten years Mm -hmm. and i think we should definitely be looking back to the last four years when we're remaking this Mm -hmm. i think there should yeah yeah i totally think like yeah mm -hmm. i am not somebody who usually 
encourages movie remakes yeah. but this it's is one that movie. i would be interested to see a remake of especially yeah i think it could work and especially with lovecraftian horror like i mean any movie that tries to do lovecraftian horror inevitably kind of falls into the trap of putting the indescribable on screen making it less scary um because the whole beginning like the first two-thirds of the movie are this great tenuous build-up to all the suspicion of like what's really happening what's going on things feel freaky and then right at the end they slap it all onto the screen and it it's you know it's there and you're like oh well there it is and i feel like the only time they really tried to hit that idea of unknowable horrors was at the very, very end when Trent is staring into the whole torn in reality and into the horror-filled chasm as Linda reads the book. And the only reason they did that scene that way was because of budget. They wanted to they wanted to show the whole town being sucked into the book, but they just didn't because of special effects budget. And it felt like even more of a letdown after they had just showed us a bunch of monsters. So they're like, oh, we're going to hide everything yes. from you. Then we're going to show a bunch of monsters. And then we're going to make you guess what's in the hole. It's like we already <laughs> know. Like, uh, we saw the fucking book cover. Right. 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 The order of operations feels off. Yeah. Like, it, it basically, it feels like there were so many brilliant ideas that were there. And then it caved in on itself a little <laughs> bit at the end. So- I want to just say this. I want to hop in and add a little bit to that. K and B effects did um, did the did these monsters? These monsters were partially acted, animatronic puppets, blah 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 blah. Mm-hmm. Um, that's fantastic. They did a good job. The yeah. Problem oh was, yeah. Absolutely no shade to right. them. Like it was amazing. And, and practical for the budget effects. that they had, I think they did the best they could. Mm-hmm. I will say mm-hmm. that there are times where people will say things that like that to me, where it's like, mm-hmm. well, you know, you can't imagine the unimaginable on paper and have it, you know, something in, on paper will look less scary on the screen. Mm. I don't really know about that because I've seen a Tyrannosaurus Rex skeleton as a kid, but when I saw Jurassic <laughs> Park and the first time I saw, Jura- you know, the first time you see mm-hmm. somebody's, it wasn't even necessarily an accurate representation of a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Now we know they had feathers, right? But like the first time you mm-hmm. see this gigantic fucking chicken bend down in front of the car and its pupil dilates, you yeah. were like, oh, fucky, fucky, shit, shit. This is bad. It was really scary. And I do believe that the problem was that they show the monsters too often and that the mm-hmm. props didn't really live up to what we were seeing in the illustrations. I feel that if the illustrations... Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, this is a little trick I've learned over the years whenever I've done my own artwork and stuff is that if, you're, if your stuff looks too good, it can underplay mm-hmm. or overplay your art depending upon what it is you're going for. Mm-hmm. Like, if you can have great acting, but if you have a shitty prop that it's revolving around, like David Lynch mm-hmm. is kind of famous oh, for yeah. this, everything was, was acting heavy and everything was metaphorical, but the props are complete shit. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like the props <laughs> were garbage. And so you're looking at mm-hmm. it and you're going, okay, well, you know, yeah, no, you don't... This. But the point of David Lynch's stuff was not to scare, it was to creep. And there's those two very different things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. When we're looking at, when we're talking about the old ones, you're already, when you're like, I'm going to do a Cthulhu film, that's like going into the bench and going into the gym, sitting down on the bench press and going, all right, I'm, I'm going to press 500 blind. I don't need mm-hmm. anyone to spot me. And it's like, well, you better have some, you better have one mighty fucking strong body if you're going to try that shit out. Because if not, you're going to have your, you're going to have your fucking sternum cracked in half. And this is definitely, this is that moment where you pick up the bar 
you kind of get it into the air, but it comes down. You don't quite die. You don't quite get your rib cage mm-hmm. squished, but you're like, <laughs> the dismount is kind of, yeah. is sloppy. I see, I see that because this was also a project that it was offered to John Carpenter. He said no. Two other directors tried it and left. And then John Carpenter came back. So clearly this was a difficult project to wrangle yeah. with. And I, I'm i 100% certain that if it wasn't John Carpenter doing it, things would have gone much worse. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Like, I, I think he did valiant work with a really difficult piece of material. I mean, this yeah. was the guy. Yeah, and this was the guy who basically got a Captain Kirk mask to become one of the most iconic masks of <laughs> horror. Yes. Ever. Okay. So yes, mm-hmm, this was mm-hmm. this was that this was that genius. It's just that to take on Cthulhu and properly translate mm-hmm. it to the screen. Firstly, you know what I know something? Big props to illustrator Matt Dixon. For uh, being able to do Cthulhu, um, because I think that there's been I've seen about a million Cthulhu illustrations over my lifetime. I it's actually something I I do for fun is I sometimes surf the web and I look for different horror illustrations. I love different types of horror illustrations. Um, Matt Dixon is probably one of the only artists who I've ever seen who has successfully painted Cthulhu. And made it both intimidating and interesting mm-hmm. and beautiful. And other than that, I like it. That's because that actually looks like the statue. That actually looks mm-hmm. like what was described in the book. That is actually mm-hmm. fairly fucking intimidating. Um, mm-hmm. I digress. Anyway, the the thing is, when you go to <laughs> so yeah, big props to Matt Dixon. Um, yeah, the the most challenging thing I think I've ever seen. Uh, is trying to adapt anything Lovecraftian to the to the screen, mm-hmm. um, because yeah, you really do have to put in the work of making what was yeah. on the page into something interesting to look at on the screen. I mean, we don't really get to see anything like that. I think until we get to Hellboy, and people are mm-hmm. going to yell at me and be like, "Yeah, they've been showing it before that," and I'm going to answer you. Yeah, but it didn't look fucking real until Hellboy. Like, it didn't look like a, you know, like, here's a good analogy. You know, Spider-Man 3 back in the day, Topher Grace was Venom. And I actually told people, like, no, that's not actually what Venom looks like. Venom's, like, the size of, like, like you know, he's, like, nine feet tall. And, like, when kids look at it, they should be hiding under the fucking bed going, Mommy, that thing's gonna eat me. And, like, you know, the one that Tom Hardy played, that's fucking Venom. That's what Venom looks mm-hmm. like. There's just this... That's sort of the same thing when you're going to do technical effects and you're going to take on something where it's been hyped up on the page. And, I mean, anybody who's watched a movie trailer, like, if it's hyped up in the trailer and then it's shit when it plays out on the screen, you know, mm-hmm. you're not necessarily disappointed too much, but you definitely walk away going, that wasn't worth $20 or that wasn't worth $40. That wasn't worth me going to the movie theater. Yeah, right? of course. So, my yeah yeah, it's like that's that's actually a big thing i talk about that a lot with people who are writers and directors i also i'm like you know no matter what you do make sure it looks as real as possible if it's going to be one of the things that people grew up loving you know of course there are Mm -hmm. there are classic examples of massive failure silent hill to the film super mario (laughs) brothers when it came out even though it's a cult film now just like bang Mm -hmm. wily coyote into the wall hard Mm -hmm. 
Um, Street Fighter the movie yeah. was great. The original design of Sonic the Hedgehog the for the oh movie that God, just came yeah. out. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's just, there's just, you know, and then there's these other times where sometimes a sloppy dismount is even worse than than just a, than just you know falling on your face and and this film kind of does mm-hmm. that so it's not like there's nothing to love i mean there's plenty to love oh the, the paperback yeah. angle's great the the paperback angle is fantastic the um but the, actually the one thing that i i kept thinking was the elder gods were just too fucking small like they they're not yeah. elder gods are colossal the words that are usually used are psychotic yeah. colossal monstrous they're, they're the size of skyscrapers. I would have rather have saved all that money on, you know, 20 animatronics and just built one big fucking hand that comes out after them. And you don't even see its face. Mm-hmm. And this guy is just running for it because he knows, you know, that he's going to get squished, you know. And of course, we do. Get yeah, I mean, that. I didn't we did get that last year. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I mean, I didn't even fully understand the role that these elder gods were supposed to play in this movie. Yeah. Like, so I I was like, okay, there's Sutter Kane, he's writing the book, and he's like, oh, they're telling me to, and there are lots of demons and stuff. But I didn't realize, like, how deep the story went. So there's a, a quote that I found, and it, as it turns out, that repeating scene of the cop beating yeah. what I think is probably a homeless man in the alley was pretty representative of Michael DeLuca's inspiration for the film. So there's this quote where he talks about his walk to the subway station after work every night. And he says, quote, It was a really scummy building, and it was a scummy area, and I just started to think that all the homeless people lying on the floor and hanging around the Port Authority, and a lot of New Yorkers in general, were a different species. Late at night, it got pretty scary, and I started to think, what if everyone wandering around me is part of this otherworldly conspiracy to replace the human race? So I combined that with a Lovecraft myth about a race of ancient beings who controlled the Earth at one point, and then were banished and have been trying to claw their way back in ever since. It took off from there, and the last thing to gel was this idea of the writer being like a combination of Stephen King and L. Ron Hubbard, so popular that his fans constitute a religion. So, like, this is great. It's, like, great insight into, you know, the, the general vision of the movie. But, like, when we're talking about these Lovecraft ideas being so big, I feel like just the specific ideas of the movie were so big that re- hearing this quote after watching this movie twice, I was like, oh, okay, like, I see it. But I would not have been able to articulate all of that deep lore about, like, the, the ancestral, you know, pre-human gods trying to regain control of the yeah. Earth just based on watching the film Precisely, alone. and that's that's the problem. You see, the, the time to have done that would have been in the Charlton Heston intro scene. There was a lot there mm-hmm. where there needed to be a discussion about the old ones. They needed to pretend that the thing that they really should have done was they should have had Heston... Um, because he played Moses in the Ten Commandments, it would have been really funny and ironic if he was just like, yeah, they, the, you know, some of the fans actually believe that this shit is real, and you know, and then, mm-hmm. in, you know, sort of segue that lore in. The other thing that also just hit, hopping back a second there that was really fucking missing for me from that scene mm-hmm. uh, was Alice Cooper because Alice Cooper had been wearing. There was somebody in the in the alleyway. Who was wearing an Alice Cooper getup with the cap and the vest, which we saw in Prince of Darkness, but we didn't get him back for In the Mouth of Madness. And, you know, my friends and I, I mean, right. uh, me and my fellow horror nerd friends, you know, not, not me and my fellow writers, me and my fellow horror nerd friends, sometimes we'll sit around at night and we'll be like, do you think that maybe Alice Cooper was Nyarlathotep? And like, 
maybe the the reason why he looked different and like as a homeless person in the alley was like you know so he could like undermine Cthulhu's plan and then it's just like no dude you've been smoking too much weed you need to stop <laughs> but yeah that that's but it's I do feel like Alice Cooper's presence might have helped bolster the uh the profit of the film I do feel that there was a lot more missing there um mm-hmm. yeah it's there's it but it was really is um sad because it was such a it it was probably the best lovecraftian adaptation but adapting yeah. lovecraft is so hard it's so hard like yeah and then there was another thing like when you're looking at themes that i think could have been developed more i spent a bunch of time thinking about the representation of religion in the movie mm-hmm. and so obviously there's it's unsurprising that there are a bunch of religious themes given that it's a tribute to stephen king and how often that shows up in in stephen king's yeah. work um but what's interesting is that the movie loves to represent the perversion of Christianity with all of the crosses and the inverted crosses and Cain declaring himself the new god. But it never presents Christianity as a potential salvation. It's like there's no sense that by following like a different path, like by following the light, things would have been saved. It's like the collapse of society is simply inevitable, um, which I think tracks. Like it seems like, you know, everything's just going towards the end. But it's interesting. I feel like in a lot of horror situations, if there's going to be so much talk about this perversion of Christianity, there's usually the duality of there's some idea of the Christian, the holy, the, or, you know, whatever salvation of finding the light. And that just wasn't here. That's actually movie. what I preferred about this because if, oh yeah, the reason why I prefer that is because if anybody reads the Bible and, you know, the book of revelation um, comes and there's just like a, you know, the punchline of the book of Revelation is you either made it or you didn't. Sorry. <laughs> you know, there is no mm-hmm. like you can. There is no like the angels are here. You can repent now. It's like, no, no. By the way, if you didn't have any faith, fuck you. We're killing you all. We're going to let you know, we're going to have you judge in about 20 minutes, you know, and, uh, you know, oh, you didn't know. I'll go fuck yourself. You're going to die anyway. And so there was kind of like and that actually kind of to me, that tracks with 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 judeo-christian religion in general which is there there's a mm-hmm. um there's this whole divine plan which is just as terrifying mm-hmm. as lovecraft's mythos which is like you know lovecraft always would say when the stars are right again right uh the old ones will return it always felt to me like calvinism and predestination which is like mm-hmm. no matter what you think you're fucked <laughs> You know, you are basically, <laughs> you are basically part of it. And that's what I love about this movie. You are part of a TV show and you are not yeah, the lead. Yeah. You're just not. You're, yep. You're, mm-hmm. you're the clown. Yeah. So this led me down a little, little rabbit hole because I, I was interested to see if there were any like real world religions yeah. based on the Lovecraftian mythos. And there are lots of like things that have dabbled, but I did find the uh, official Cult of Cthulhu website <laughs> pleasantly surprising they have a very visually pleasing and informative website um and they seem to generally be organized in a, in a way that's kind of similar reminiscent of satanism regarding themselves as a group free of free and forward thinkers who eschew traditional religion in favor of their own code of logic and ethics i and exactly what we're talking about the top section of their faq is uh what is cosmicism and they start with Cosmicism is a term coined by H.P. Lovecraft. The philosophy of cosmicism states, 
that there is no recognizable divine presence such as God in the universe, and that humans are particularly insignificant in the larger scheme of intergalactic existence. The most prominent theme is humanity's fear of their insignificance in the face of an incomprehensibly large universe, a fear of the cosmic I feel like void. This is Trent Reznor's religion. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and What's honestly, the prayer? I the love prayer is it. Whatever, man. Amen. <laughs> I love it. Like, as somebody that, like, I am, again, unsurprisingly, not, you know, not a religious person myself, but, you know, I've always been kind of of the persuasion that, like, what grounds me is the idea that everything's just huge and vast and unknowable, and, like, what we do matters probably fuck all, so you might as well enjoy it along yeah, the way. <laughs> um, but, so I, I feel like they really capture that right up up at the top. They're also very upfront about the fact that their members are split between believing in Cthulhu, believing in Cthulhu and the old gods as metaphors for biz, bigger cosmic concepts. Like the idea that some of them might be rep represent the Big Bang and ideas of, you know, how life is formed in the universe and these big concepts that, you know, these are all metaphorical figures versus the, uh, the members of the cult who believe in the possibility that they're actually real creatures. Probably not gods gods in the traditional sense, but certainly something real out there in the universe. This idea that they're, they're certainly not caring gods steering things with a loving hand, but given the vastness of space, the idea that there's something Cthulhu-esque out there is pretty legit to I them. Mean, it's <laughs> certainly more plausible than the whole warm fuzzy god, because yeah. well, I mean, yeah. George Carlin always said it best, right? There's, there's you know, People have convinced themselves that there's a man who lives in the sky who loves you more than anything else. And he has these 10 things he wants you to do. And if you don't do any of these 10 things, he'll send you to a place of fire and burning and torment forever. But he loves you and he needs your money. You know, God of omniscient, you know, totally omniscient, omnipresent, mm -hmm. just can't seem to handle money. And so mm -hmm. there's kind of a, you know, the way that that God is pitched which is probably the worst commercial ever, and I think people are waking up to that slowly, is that that god doesn't really line up with what human reality uh, experiences. It mm -hmm. just doesn't line up with the human experience, right? It's not like that in places mm -hmm. where, where there's mass poverty. It's not like, you know, places where people are dying of drought or people are dying of famine. That's, that's not the way it is. And so... Yeah, if you also look at even, or like, you know, what does God have to say about the dinosaurs in the Bible? We don't really say that. You know, it was like, God was bored one day, yeah. played baseball, and came a little too close to the earth, you know? And yeah, I mean, I've always... I, I... I've always enjoyed the uh, the Star Trek version of gods, like the idea of Qs who are around. And they're like, yeah, they're here, but that's sure as hell not a loving god. That's a god that realized he can play sense. with an ant farm. And uh, right. yeah, he's got an ant farm right in front of him. And whoo who knows what he'll do today? Right. And that's the terrifying <laughs> I'm thing. I'm like, that would track. You see, the terrifying thing about yeah. that prick and the ancient Greek gods and Roman gods was you oh. hated them. But you didn't necessarily get to say it out loud because you're terrified of what they would do to you. And mm -hmm. I definitely believe that that is trickled yeah. into our into our current religions for for the mainstream. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but this the, again, like the, the Cthulhu idea, like appeals to me. It's like nothing you do will ultimately affect Cthulhu. Yeah, that's Calvinism. <laughs> it is that's so far. It's all predetermined. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All, all predetermined. Mm -hmm. And that's you're screwed. It's you a are vibe. damned yeah. if you do, damned if you don't. And if you don't move fast enough, there's going to be tentacle rape. It's going to be horrible. And uh, it's just. <laughs> 
Yeah, there's a, a certain degree of nihilism, but like hidden optimism in there, which I enjoy. But I do just want to say that the, in their FAQ, one of on the Cult of Cthulhu website, one of one of the questions and my favorite question is, uh, is the LGBT community welcome here? And their answer is, I quote, yes. The first tenet of Cthulhu is, all are equally insignificant to Cthulhu. Jesus. It is our insignificance that unites us and makes us all truly equal. We could not care less about who you choose to love, who you identify as, or the color of your skin. <laughs> Here you will be judged only by the content of your character. Most beautiful response to like, fuck all, any of these little personal choices, you think the giant tentacle monster cares? <laughs> he don't! <laughs> Like, what a beautiful, loving message is, framed in just absolute don't give a fuck. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, when, when looking at the Mouth of Madness, um, I mean, I was somewhat disappointed by the ending. I did like, I mean, I think that yeah, I've watched it way more than most people have. I, I think that it's, um, I came away, you know, this last time watching it, I came away from, with two things, which is, a, I hope they do remake it, and I hope that the remake is far more painful and more revealing than the original. Um, I also hope that Fantasy Flight Games picks up, because I was bitching about this, like, last January with Life Force. Yep. I just want to say this one more time. Yep. It always seems to happen in the beginning of the year. Fantasy Flight is, like, always pushing new new expansion material. I'm like, why would you guys not buy the license rights to Carpenter's stuff? Like... If you could have, uh -huh. even even if you just took the, the Trinity, right? Even if you just took the Thing and Prince of Darkness and and In the Mouth of Madness, you'd make a fortune on, on like, game expansions. But, like, imagine just sliding in Christine and Halloween in there. It'd be, like, yeah, be the ultimate horror board game, period. But, like, yeah, I guess they'll figure that out in another two decades or so. Whatever. So yeah, yeah, yeah. They'll they'll get there. And I mean, I was going to say maybe it was difficult, but I, I did just remember that you know Halloween makes an appearance in a in Dead by Daylight, yep. so clearly they are offering the licensing yeah. in some places. Yeah. So have at it. Yeah, I definitely think that there's <laughs> going to be a point where it's all amalgamated in one place, and then uh, mm -hmm. it's going to be interesting. Yeah, yeah. My last my last thing from my notes that I do want to make sure that I pop in is that. I discovered my new favorite John Carpenter quote, which comes from the commentary on the In the Mouth of Madness Blu-ray, in which he just cheerfully says, Children in movies always love to play monsters. They love it more than anything else. They try to be evil. <laughs> which is such a great sentiment. <laughs> and so true. Like, you could see the glee in all of those kids' faces that are like, Yeah! We're here to fuck shit up! <laughs> yeah, those kids are really hard, weren't they? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very, yeah, very happy big. to see Hayden Christensen, you know, being a paper boy. It's also very interesting. <laughs> yes. Oh, I loved it. I loved it. <laughs> so if you like these films, one thing that I really like, there are a couple of films you could pair up My Bloody Valentine 3D with. Um, because it's a remake, I'd probably pair it up with a remake too. I've paired it up with um, 2002's The Ring remake. Um, I've also paired it up with... Uh, you know, if you want to do a slasher night, I've paired it up with um, the Nightmare on Elm Street remake from 2010. I've also paired it up with some of the later Scream 
franchise installments whenever I was running low on good slasher remakes. Um, of course, there's also the Friday the 13th remake from 2009 that also came out that year. That was also very good um, for a remake. And so those are, you know, those are all things that you could throw them together with. When it comes to In the Mouth of Madness, I like to keep my Lovecraft with my Lovecraft. I don't know why. Um, I like, uh, I do keep it with Reanimator normally. Um, I usually use this movie as the first movie and then I follow it up with that. Um, there's also I Sell the Dead from Glass Eye Picks, which I also think is fantastic and definitely has a Lovecraftian edge to it. Um, yeah, but I try to keep it toward the hammier side because of the way that it's aged. I don't really feel it's as aged as well as some of the newer um, Lovecraftian installments. And the reason for that is simply technology. That has, that has nothing to do with, mm-hmm. yeah, has nothing to do with, um, has nothing to do with actors, quality, any of that. It's just that this is really something where, you know, to quote, to quote Wilford Brimley, it's all about the rubber man, you know? And so it's like, um, when we're looking at how we're going to pair up our Lovecraft, uh, there's plenty of stuff within like the last two or three years where if you put it next to the old stuff, it just doesn't feel the same. And so the tone of the evening is, you know, there's a there's a shift in tone. So I try to avoid that when possible. So those are the, those would be my recommendations. So yeah, well, we'll be back next month. And uh, in the meantime, here's the horror news with Sophia Ryan. Bye, everyone. Happy March, everyone. It's Sophia with the horror news for this month, and there is a lot of it. You have just finished hearing about My Bloody Valentine 3D and In the Mouth of Madness. This news isn't as exciting as a murderous ghost trying to avenge his death or a famous author whose work drives readers insane, but you can aspire to be those things. We can only help with the latter, though. So let's see where you can distribute your work this month and inspire terror in the hearts of your readers. Nightmare Magazine is open to horror and dark fantasy short stories, flash fiction, poetry, and creative nonfiction from authors who are Black, Indigenous, or people of color. This very specific submission schedule is open from March 7th at 8 a.m. UTC through March 14th at 7.59 a.m. UTC. After that, these same genres are open to writers of all kinds from March 14th at 8 a.m. to March 21st at 6:59 a.m. Find more information and plan accordingly at adamant.moksha.io backslash publication backslash nightmare. That's a d a m a n t dot m o k s h a dot i o backslash publication backslash nightmare. Pseudopod opens its submission season from March 1st through July 31st. However, they are only looking to purchase non-exclusive reprints from anthologies and collections released at any time in 2021. These stories are slated to run in November and December this year. If your piece is going to be released any time this year before that deadline, have your publisher get in touch with Pseudopod or reach out yourself through their Moksha portal. Go to pseudopod.org backslash submissions backslash submissions hyphen schedule to view their schedule. You can also go straight to escapeartists.moksha.io to see all related publications and submit to Escape Pod, Podcastle, Pseudopod, or the Cast of Wonders. 
If you have a dark fantasy or horror tale that falls between 2,000 to 6,000 words, you just might consider venturing into the dark. This cleverly named magazine features stories of high unpredictability, so you can be sure to enjoy stories that are nothing short of unusual. If you want to submit, make sure to only send one piece at a time. Selected stories will receive six cents per word on publication for first world rights, up to 6,000 words. You can find more details at thedarkmagazine.com backslash submission hyphen guidelines backslash. 3LBE stands for Three Lobed Burning Eye Magazine. This publication comes out twice a year with six stories of speculative fiction. They are most interested in stories that expand the genre with defined and unique, especially marginalized voices. Stories can be experimental, but not too far off the deep end. If your story expands the genre without too much gore, you might want to submit to this magazine. Sometimes stories also have audio recordings. 3LBE is open to submissions of short fiction for their upcoming spring issue. Acceptable short stories fall between 1,001 to 7,500 words, but you might want to stick between 2,000 to 5,000 words. 3LBE also accepts flash fiction at or below 1,000 words. See more at threelobedmag.com backslash submissions.html. The No Sleep Podcast is now closed to flash fiction. However, they are looking for short stories that are at least 1,200 words and up to 2,499 words. They are also ready for scary stories at or above 2,500 words, in addition to scripts for audio dramas. But be sure to bring your A-game before you submit to submissions at thenosleeppodcast.com. There are not many requirements for submitting, but make sure that the narration of your story is no longer than one hour, and your audio drama, if you write a script, falls between 20 and 40 minutes. No Sleep does not care for a cover letter or CV, but they do want a spoiler-free list of characters with speaking roles for the stories of a regular length story or script. You can find more information at thenosleeppodcast.com backslash submissions. Grimscribe Press is the home of Vestarian, a literary journal. This journal is a place to promote a range of excellent writing and artwork from diverse authors, especially those whose views and identities have been historically underrepresented in horror. This month, for the Women in Horror Month, they are open to writers who do not identify as male. If you have unpublished nonfiction that pertains to legati or associated authors, literary horror fiction inspired by Ligatian or related themes, or poetry or art that deals with subjects and themes that fall within their areas of interest, you should head over to grimscribepress.com backslash submission hyphen guidelines. There you will find specifications for submissions in each genre and a list of authors whose work the journal is strongly influenced by. They are also open to authors who are based outside of the U.S. Go to grimscribepress.com backslash submission hyphen guidelines for more information. Whether you are a poet, nonfiction, or fiction writer, you might benefit from checking out horrortree.com. This website has been around since 2011 as a resource for genre and speculative fiction authors. There's no ulterior motive to using this website because Horrortree does not make money off your submissions to any of the anthologies they advertise. Navigate to their website at horrortree.com to find information in the drop-down menus broken down into anthologies, places to submit reprinted work, 
flash fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. Each tab will offer more information about your selected genre that is looking for submissions. Head over to horrortree.com and find a new opportunity for your kind of writing. If you are a novelist and your manuscript is finally ready for a publisher's eye, check out Flame Tree Press. This company is looking for speculative fiction novels, including sci-fi, fantasy, horror, supernatural, crime, mystery, and suspense. If your manuscript is at least 70,000 to 120,000 words max and has not been self-published, check out more information at flametreepublishing.com backslash submissions.html. Please note that even though The Late Night does its best to bring horror authors the most up-to-date information for publication venues, it cannot guarantee that all the aforementioned information will remain valid. All submissions should be considered tentative and subject to change. If you're a magazine or press that's interested in having your submissions advertised on The Late Night, you can write to monerlawrence at hotmail.com. Thanks for tuning in. The Late Night, a horror podcast, is brought to you by Moner T. Lawrence. Find us at monaria.com and The Late Night Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you.